0: Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week... I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome back to the podcast. This week's theme for Advent is peace. Now, peace is a word that gets thrown around a lot during the holidays. It is a state of being that we all pray for and long for, especially right now, I think. I want to begin with a poem by Wendell Berry entitled, Untitled. To my granddaughters who visited the Holocaust Museum on the day of the burial of Yitzhak Rabin, November 6, 1995. Now you know the worst we humans have to know about ourselves, and I am sorry, for I know you will be afraid. To those of our bodies given without pity to be burned, I know there is no answer but loving one another, even our enemies. And this is hard. But remember, when a man of war becomes a man of peace, he gives a light divine, though it is also human. When a man of peace is killed by a man of war, he gives a light. You do not have to walk in darkness. If you have the courage for love, you may walk in light. It will be the light of those who have suffered for peace it will be your light. For our conversation today about peace with everything that is going on in the world, I wanted to bring in a friend who I know will have an informed and heartfelt perspective on both peace and violence or conflict. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Benjamin Norquist. Ben, who has his PhD in higher education from Azusa Pacific, serves Churches for Middle East Peace as their ambassador, Warren Clark Fellow, tracking the shrinking civil and human rights space in Palestine and Israel. He is also writing a book with InterVarsity Press on the ways that physical landscapes and built environments are structured around social values and inequities, and how the church can tell more honest stories about American places. Ben is married to Ariel, and together they have three teenagers. They live in Glen Ellyn, Illinois, near Chicago, and enjoy visiting the grandparents' alpaca farm in southern Wisconsin. Ben just discovered that he likes running marathons this year, and he is currently running a virtual marathon to raise awareness and engagement with Palestinian issues in Gaza. Ben Norquist, it is awesome to have you on the podcast. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So for for my listeners, um, Ben is actually an old friend of mine. We went to college together way back in the day. Maybe I won't say how long ago it was, Ben. Maybe we don't need to know that. Maybe we don't need to think about that. I won't, I won't say it either. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, we went to Bryan College together, and I actually think I was thinking um, as I was um, driving this morning my kids to school i was thinking that like i think maybe you were may- the first person on campus that my husband tim met uh and he connected with you because you were both from wisconsin and um right. had come to tennessee for school which is a long way away um and i was also trying to remember did we did we go to india together were we on a trip to india together i did several uh, trips so yeah i did too i don't remember i think if we, we were- did Did we? Okay. Yeah. I think there was a time where we were in Chennai together. So anyway, well, this is all personal chit chat, but it's just uh, to, to say all that to say it's lovely to have an old friend on the podcast, somebody whose work. I don't know. It's just cool when like friends from your youth, like go out into the world and start doing work that you can get really excited about and that it's fun to cheer each other on after all these years. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you and, um, and kind of the expertise and the experience that you bring, um, You know, this is a revival of this podcast for the sake of Advent, and obviously the theme for this week is is peace. And so, I'm going to start by asking you the question I'm asking all my guests uh, to start out with: is what What is your definition of peace? This concept of peace. What is the Ben Norquist understanding of peace? Yeah,
1: thanks, Amanda, and thanks for having me on the podcast. It's it's, I feel the same way about you. It's been really fun to see your um, your contributions to the world, mm-hmm. um, and the, both the music and the writing, especially, and just mm-hmm. the spirit that you bring to anything that you that you're producing. So. Mm,
0: thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Um,
1: okay. What's the Ben Norquist version of peace? Um, uh, so this is rooted and grounded for me, my my story in how I started thinking about peace. And relating to peace is something that's really critically central to the Christian life and to, uh, the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I root in my childhood pastor. Uh, his name was Arthur Rauner, which, um, you know, to, to the seven, five, six, seven year old mind, uh, I thought it meant that he was somehow connected to Arthur of the round table.
0: Oh, Um, like the King (laughs) Arthur of lore. (laughs) (laughs) How exciting.
1: But I also have a memory of him kind of disappearing from the pulpit every year for a month or two Mm -hmm. and then coming back. And each time he came back, he would have more of these um, beautiful metal bracelets on his arm. Mm -hmm. And he was going to, this is all stuff that I learned later about him. Um, On his trips, he was going to Kenya, in Tanzania, in Ethiopia, and sitting down for reconciliation uh, retreat hmm. with the leaders of tribes that had been historically at war with one another. Hmm. And uh, I think I heard that story about him, and it really struck me when I was in college. Um, and I started, you know, uh, realizing that these people around me are really amazing people and I have things to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, be- he kind of became a mentor to me after the fact. It really was compelling this idea of, um, you know, that the gospel reconciles people to mm-hmm. each other uh, in addition to reconciling people to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so peace became a really central uh, idea um, and aspiration uh, for me from, you know, age 19, 20, 21, um, and 21, um, and going forward, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how that's, that's unfolded um, in the work that I do, but, uh, but I want to paint a picture and go back to scripture, actually, before we do that. Um, in the first few chapters of the Bible, um, we see God creating all that is. We see him creating uh, the universe and um, the earth and the seas and putting animals and plants and people. Mm. And at the end of each period of creation, God surveys what has been made and says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And, and in the end, he says, it is very good. Mm-hmm. This picture, this ever so brief picture at the beginning of scripture of completeness, <clears> of <throat> so all, all the people and the animals having humans, having all that they need. And not only actually having all that they need, but knowing that they have all that they need is a picture of peace. <clears throat> Both an absence of conflict, you know, the kind of conflict that erupts when we feel like we don't have all that we need, Um, and not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of abundance and of peace. And there's this, so this biblical word, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, um, you know, there's a Greek word as well, irene. Um, that's used in the New Testament to to get a, a similar idea, um, but that's what that's the picture of shalom of peace that that sort of motivates me, mm-hmm. and um, it strikes me too how how brief that picture is in Scripture mm-hmm. before everything starts going wrong. Uh, yeah. So I think it's equally important for us to think about um, you know what what does the absence of peace look like? Yeah uh because that's the world that we live in right now. We are wounded as we you know, each day as we live in this world of anti peace, of
0: -hmm.
1: violence. Um, you know, and that story is told in scripture, um, you know, through the fall, when Adam and Eve reach out and take and something breaks in that moment in the world. Um, and then the first sin that's described after the fall is a murder. Mm. And it's not just any murder. It's fratricide. Yeah. It's a brother murdering a brother in this family unit that should be the place where we experience the most shalom. Mm -hmm. And Cain reaches out. Again, there's that reaching out and taking. In this case, he reaches out and takes a life. Um, and uh, over the, the following chapters, um, there's there's more and more of that breaking of peace uh, as the, as creation breaks down and as we'd say shalom disappears. Yeah. Um, and one of uh, one of Cain's responses to to the world that he now lives in is to go to God and express fear, God, mm. God, comes to him and says, "You will be displaced. You will be cast out away from your home." And uh, and Cain says, uh, "I'm afraid that someone will kill me." Yeah. Uh, and God responds and says, "I I'll take care of that for you." Um, but Cain is not satisfied. He builds a city instead. and and uh, it's a picture of taking into his own hands the role of protecting himself. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that city, the picture that, that is presented is that city is a walled city. It's, he is, he's saying, God, your protection of me is not sufficient. I will take that into my own hands. And there's this continual breakdown of shalom. Um, and then I'll just, uh, quickly, I wanna, I wanna offer just a couple of other thoughts before we, before we move on. But, um, so, uh, there's a Norwegian theorist, uh, Johan Galtung, who dedicated his life to studying peace Mm. and violence. And Galtung talks about violence which we've just been talking about violence in structure. Um he talks about there being three different layers or three different types of violence. There's direct violence, which is the kind of violence that you see enacted, you know, between people or groups, uh, when someone hurts someone else or kills someone else. Um that's direct violence. Then there's structural violence and that Actually, so just to put this in a a concrete example, let's take slavery. Uh, Slavery in the United States. um, Enslaved people regularly experienced violence at the hands of their masters. Um, If they were whipped or beaten or verbally abused or emotionally abused, there was all kinds of direct violence that was practiced against people. But um, that Direct violence was enabled by structural violence, right? which is all of the laws that legalized the purchase and the sale of humans, the laws that allowed people to keep them and exploit them, and uh, even the physical infrastructures of that. There were slave ships, and there were auction houses, and there were um, slave quarters, And all of the structures that were built in order to enable the system that enabled direct violence. That's structural violence. And then Dalton talks about cultural violence, which is Mm. the norms and the ideas and the expectations of people in society that uh, normalized the structural violence and the direct violence. And when you think about the way that, uh, slavery ended in the United States, um, you know, with the um, abolition of slavery, um, that was the abolition of structural, the structural violence of slavery. Um, but it didn't eradicate the cultural violence that went with that. Mm-hmm and that cultural violence which was you know a kind of a white supremacy and which you you actually saw in a lot of abolitionists too yeah. a lot of abolitionists yeah. who saw at the end of the structure were themselves white supremacists right they harbored right. that kind of cultural violence right uh, and that cultural violence um gave birth to a new structure of violence jim crow mm-hmm. and sundown towns and later redlining and all of these kinds of things. These are ways that uh, that violence is uh, is entrenched in the world around us, and shalom is is kept at bay. Mm. Um, and Galtung then talked about peace. He wanted to think positively about peace. Um, he talked about negative peace and positive peace. Like, negative peace was the absence of direct violence mm. result. And when we think about often when we think about the kind of peace that we that we ask for, not necessarily that we most need, but that we seek, it's really just like relief from the direct violence. Right. Negative peace. Because negative peace which just ends the direct violence without addressing the structural or, or cultural violence is unstable peace. Mm-hmm. It won't last. If the structural and cultural violence is not also eradicated, then uh, the cessation of direct violence is temporary. Right. So he talked, and then he talked about positive peace as being the eradication of all of those things. That's how I think about peace.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's striking me as you're talking is just the richness and the depth of this word peace that I think we very often uh, water down and dilute. You know, I think my understanding of the concept of peace for so long was like just, well, peace is a tranquil feeling. Peace is kind of like almost like a palliative of mm-hmm. like well, I'm, I'm I'm unbothered in my spirit, whereas when we look in scripture, like you said, whether it's the the, the Hebrew word shalom or irene, like it it is a it's a much more um, dense and 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 heavy word. One definition I've read is that it, it's that all the essential parts of a thing being joined together properly and mm-hmm. while it has been used in scripture to describe well-being of mind there's also a lot of political and, uh, and civic undercurrents to the word which speaks exactly to this this human relationship that that you've you've alluded to um yeah it indicates an absence of warfare and is often used to describe an armistice or a restoration of relationship between nations or conflicting groups yeah um So we talk about, obviously, peace, shalom, as it was intended in the beginning, and that brokenness that we've experienced, we experience again and again, both internally in our interpersonal relationships, and in systems, and I love that, and in culture, I love that you speak to all three, because we can tend to focus on Mm -hmm. one or the other. And I love how scripture actually addresses and speaks to all three. We we are obviously living in a time right now where we are witnessing um, extreme violence and extreme lack of peace in a place that's very dear to you and that you've spent a lot of time in. Um, so just, so tell us, I, I would just love for people to hear what it, it's been like for you as someone who spent a lot of time in Palestine, in the West Bank, in Bethlehem. What has it been like for you for the last month and a half or two months to see what's unfolding there.
2: Um, Thanks for asking that about that, Amanda. Um, Israel and Palestine uh, are important to me, Um, you know, in ways that are, they're important to a lot of Christians um, and other people of faith around the world. Um, But, uh, but they, you know, I work on Israel and Palestine issues uh, for my day job. Um, And I've been there many times and I have friends, um, friends in the area who are hurting. And, um, you know, so it's very personal for me as well. Um, And uh, of course it's been hard. Um, The events of October 7th were shocking Um, and um, so saddening and disheartening. Um, I... I have to say they, they were shocking, but in a way as well, for someone who's been um, watching the violence of that region for so long, they also weren't that new to me Mm. in a, in a kind Mm -hmm. of a sad way uh, because there's, um, there's so much, you know, and this is where I actually go back to the direct violence and structural and cultural violence because the West only hears about, these things when direct violence flares up, mm-hmm. but there are ongoing realities of, of structural and cultural violence that are devastating to people there that we don't, we don't hear about. Uh, and so when we call for peace or when we call for a ceasefire or those kinds of things, and I actually am for a ceasefire there, um, I'm for an end of the, the, the direct violence that's happening right now. hmm Um, but when we call for that and, and it comes and there is a ceasefire, um, then we stop paying attention. Right. But the structural violence and the cultural violence continues.
0: Um, Mm.
2: and so, you know, it's the daily realities of structural violence, um, are are disheartening to me as well and so when there's this flare-up it's it's shocking but it's it's not new and it's actually not very surprising either
0: right right Um, right
2: so but it's been um you know we have friends i work with um with folks on the ground there who um, have lost loved ones um and and they're they're you know weeping and mourning and they're bereaved, um, in ways that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm sad. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, their experiences are so much more important than mine Mm -hmm. of this conflict. Yeah. Um, but you know, in, in Gaza, 50% of, um, residential housing has been destroyed and rendered, um, uninhabitable so even after the end of the violence there's going to be um huge questions of how to you know how palestinians are going to uh weather the winter
0: right right
2: and um and christmas is canceled in bethlehem this year um you know we're we're in advent and we all probably have our um advent uh, calendars and our um you know, manger scenes, right. That, that manger scene, you know, we probably no other place in the world is depicted, Mm. you know, in our living rooms with figurines as commonly (laughs) as Bethlehem is. Right. But, and that's where Christmas, the original Christmas took place and Christmas is canceled there this year.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, And I, you, Ben, we'd be happy to link this in the show notes too. You know, people that are doing good work on the ground there that can support those that are in need. And so, um, be happy for you to, to share more about that as when we, when we close out the interview and, and, and we can link it in the show notes if people are interested in supporting. Um, but yeah, I was thinking, you know, it, it it is a region that is not, violence is not new. Um, lack of pieces is, is this is this is a perennial um, issue and Jesus when he when he was born you know we're gonna we're, we're trying to focus here on this incarnational presence of God and this place that God chose to step into was a place that was a colonized corner of the Roman Empire like Jesus stepped into a life of of poverty of marginalization of of what some people would call lack and he bore Kind of the brunt of both political and religious oppression at the hands of multiple sources, you know, Uh, both his um, kind of the religious elites from his own people and obviously the political oppressors of the Roman Empire. But Jesus steps in and begins talking about peace and peacemaking. And so I'm curious to hear what you believe a peacemaker really is and. I guess, besides telling us that peacemakers are blessed, we all know Jesus said, (laughs) blessed are the peacemakers. What does the incarnate Christ have to show us about what it means to make peace? And what does he have to teach us about peace? Yeah.
2: Paul says that Jesus uh, is our peace. Um, So he blesses the peacemakers. Um, He brings peace, but he also is our peace. And I think that's really profound thought that um, that we should bring into the center of our hearts this Advent season um, because Paul, you know, because Jesus is not the one who comes, who came this time riding on a horse. He was born humbly into a, a stable scene in Bethlehem. Um, And when I think about, Uh, the lessons of peace from Jesus. I think about some modern day people who, um, who are like Jesus in some ways. Hmm. Um, I think of this organization called the parents circle, uh, which is made up of Israeli and Palestinian parents Hmm. who are bereaved. Um, That is to say parents who's, you know, who have lost a child to the conflict Wow. Um, and many of these people live in, some of them live in Bethlehem and many of them live very near Bethlehem and Jerusalem and other, other areas that are very close. And I think of um, uh, an Israeli woman and a Palestinian man, uh, a mother and a father, they both lost children who were killed by members of the other side. Um, and now they... You know, they, they have gone through the excruciatingly difficult work of listening to each other's stories. Mm. And they've built a relationship with each other. Um, and all, all of these parents talk about how excruciating that work is of sitting down with the other. With, Mm. you know, if you're a Palestinian with the Israelis, if you're an Israeli with the Palestinians and coming to finally, after all of that work, and it's an ongoing process, but coming to a point where you're able to accept the validity of the, their grievances Mm. and of their pain so that your pain isn't Um, to you isn't uh, an excluding kind of experience where there's no room for their pain. Mm. Um, And when I think about the sacrifice that it took for these um, courageous men and women to um, sit down with each other and to open their ears and their hearts to each other, Mm Um, and what they have accomplished in doing that, I think of Jesus. Mm. Um, I think of, uh, the kinds of virtues that, um, you know, were that Jesus exemplified humility, um, self-sacrifice, patience, love, um, they they're exemplifying those. Um, and yeah, I guess my last thought about Jesus and peace is, um, you know, Jesus, as he was getting ready to depart, said, uh, that he was going to prepare a place for us. Yeah. And when I think about the kind of place that Jesus is preparing for us, I go back to the garden. Hmm. I look forward to the, you know, the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, these, this is a place of shalom. Yeah. It's a place of um, perfect shalom, eternal shalom. Uh, and the world that we live in right now is not that. Yeah. But we are, you know, as we are called and empowered by Jesus and the spirit um, to walk in the way of shalom, um we have the opportunity to build nurture um birth uh moments of shalom yeah um signposts that point forward to that that perfect yeah. place that Jesus is preparing for us
0: yeah When I hear you talk about this mother and father who sat down together, it it felt like that first act of peace was the sitting and the listening. How do you, how do you feel like storytelling and curiosity about the nuance and complexity of one another's stories? How does that help with peacemaking?
2: Mm.
0: Because I'll, I'll say that as you're thinking, I, I think what's so challenging is that we we are a society, we are a culture that has less and less capacity for complexity. I'm sure you've heard of the bo- Neil Postman's "Amusing Ourselves to Death," that book where he talks about we we absorb information and absorb stories in sound bites now, and ideally entertaining, palatable, amusing sound bites. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, he talks about in 1700s, 1800s, maybe there wasn't as much literacy across the board, but people who could read had so much more of an attention span for, um, for, for complexity, for, for a longer uh, kind of explanation for how things are. So it's like you didn't choose your political candidates based on an entertaining uh, political debate you would actually sit down with a treatise or a pamphlet like a right. 50 page pamphlet and absorb and they're very yourself. <laughs> educate yourself on their very complex ideas and i find that one reason i think this what's happening particularly in israel and gaza is so hard right now is because the story is such a long one it's such a complex one and the, the solutions unfortunately are not you know easy or straightforward and it requires like a self-education to even understand anything about the context something we we just don't have time to do right now that we don't make time to do it's not a cultural value and so you have people just very quickly after watching one tiktok video choosing a quote-unquote side and moving to the extreme of that position and digging in when really we've not told ourselves the full story of the quote "Quote other. Yeah. So yeah. Talk to me about this role of long form storytelling, patient storytelling and true curiosity as a virtue. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, I don't remember who said this, but, uh, I thank them for saying it because it's, uh, it's so helpful to me. Um, but the quote is something like, um, we are more often, um, wrong in what we deny than in what we affirm
0: Hmm.
2: something like that yeah and what i get out of that the way i interpret that idea is that um when we speak our truth when we try to identify something that's important to us and tell that story um are we telling it in, in such a way that it that it denies space for someone else for their story Mm. does it at the same time affirm something that you're aiming at as denying something that someone else is aiming at or a story that someone else is telling about Mm. something that's deep deeply important to them or true about them um uh we we err when we more often when we tell those kinds of stories that um that create the preempt against other people's stories. And this happens with Israel and Palestine all the time. The narrative on one side is told in such a way as to deny any valid space for the grievances or stories of the other side. Right. And so it, it, that's why it feels so impossible. Actually, that's half of the reason Mm -hmm. Um, because the way that some of the partisan stories are told um, invalidates the deepest truths that are present in the other, other experience on the other side of the wall. Um, I think that that's profound and it's, it's something that's deeply embedded in the way that we tell stories and think about stories, Um, you know, in this social media age. um, You talk about long form storytelling too. And it reminds me, I just saw um, uh, killers of the flower moon last night uh, Martin Scorsese's new film um, about the Osage um, experience, really tragic um, injustice that took place in Oklahoma at the beginning of the 1900s. Um, and uh, he, that, story, that movie is very long. It's uh, three and a half hours long. And, this is why
0: we haven't seen it yet. We have not found a sitter <laughs> right. who's willing to commit to okay. five hours of us being away.
2: Well, the other things that are true about it are that it's um it's a quiet film. Mm-hmm. It's not loud, like in terms of the actual volume, it's a quiet film. Um and it unfolds slowly and yeah. at its own pace. Uh and there are long moments of silence with long takes. Um and I got to the end and I thought the the story that I've just seen is incredibly brutal and evil. What happened? Um, but uh, Martin Scorsese didn't make it in a way as to uh, manipulate my heartstrings. He just, yeah. it was a very straightforward telling of the story that didn't, um, that didn't manipulate me and it didn't um, invalidate the experience like, and all, other people's experiences of what happened, um, yeah, it it was, I've, I found it to be an example of telling a story that affirmed more than it denied. Yeah. Um, and really appreciated that about the way that he told that story and um, was very collaborative and um, with Osage leadership. In how that story would be told as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, that I, this othering that is so common in today's culture. It's like we, I feel like we are constantly put in this kind of uh, pressurized environment where we're, everything is polarized and we're told we have to choose a side. Either you support the life of the unborn or you support the mother. Either you you know are empathetic towards the the Palestinian cause or the Israeli cause. Either you are Democrat, like whatever the issue is, you're you are a masker or an anti-masker, vaxer, anti-vaxer. It's it's one or the other. in this 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 nuance that maybe exists in between um, there's no there's no space for that. And I, I guess we we gravitate towards these extremities because the the extreme story. Is maybe the most familiar, or or the the simpler, the easier, the less emotionally taxing one to take on. That we are all, we are the good guys, and they are the bad guys, and there is no, um, there's no space for any kind of nuance in between. So how do how do you think this this polarization or this othering of Mm -hmm. our enemies? How does that subvert peace?
2: Yeah, you're right. We, um, uh, when we experience the other, maybe it's a particular person, maybe it's a group. um, We, it's easier to put a label, make a caricature,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um, you know, formulate a straw man in our minds, who that person is and what they represent. Put words in their mouth. Yeah. Um, attribute motives. You know, um, this happens all the time in my family and my friend group. Um, uh, and you know, I I often think about the fundamental attribution error, where mm-hmm. you know, which basically is this very human tendency to when we experience some a person or a group that we think of as other, um, and they, uh, they do something bad. Yeah. You know, they're late for work. In our minds, we attribute that, we tend to attribute that to a character flaw in that person, something
1: mm-hmm.
2: essential and genetic to who they are. We say they're lazy. Um, but when we're wait, late for work, we're not lazy um it was bad traffic mm. uh and when you th- you know when you lift that out of sort of um why someone was late for work and um instead we're talking about um people who've killed each other the stakes are even higher yeah because yeah. in our minds that group killed that group because they're terrorists And then we can go about our day. We've made up our minds about the story um, and it's comforting. And that's why, you know, there have been several um, articles recently that I've read um, from leading Christians who I deeply appreciate, um, but who have called for moral clarity Mm -hmm. um, in how we respond to what happened on October 7th and and the ensuing um response from Israel um and what is so risky about what what I think they're arguing for about moral clarity is that it risks being moral simplicity
0: mm, yeah,
2: um that and simplicity feels better, yeah, um yeah, and uh so yes, we need moral clarity, but we don't, we don't want moral simplicity. We want moral consistency. Mm. Um, and along with that clarity. So, yeah. Um, yeah, And uh, so how we, how we interact with the other, um, I think going back to one of your earlier sto- um, questions about storytelling and how that interacts with peace. One of the, one of the most profound things that we can do in pursuing peace and shalom is thinking through who do we think of as other?
0: Hmm.
2: And then um, setting aside time and emotional um, margin for uh, earnestly, in good faith, seeking their stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a good practice for Advent, I think that feels very much in the spirit of the repentant and reflective nature of Advent that I've been talking about on the podcast is to say maybe ask yourself, who is the other in my mind? and what can I do to learn their story? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I heard it was maybe it was it was either Sky Gitani or David French. I heard somebody recently say we tend to maximize, the virtues that we see in ourselves and minimize our flaws. And then we do the opposite in our, in in our enemies, we Mm -hmm. maximize their flaws and minimize their virtues.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So is there a way maybe we could look at maximizing (laughs) the, the virtues, the humanity, even of the other in our mind, this advent. Um, Ben, I knew this would happen, that we'd run out of time and we would have hours and hours of things to talk about. Um, but I want for people to hear a little bit, if you're able, are you able to talk about the book project that you're working on? Yes. Please give to. us a snippet <laughs> because I'm so excited about it. And anyone who reads my stuff or follows me is going to be hearing more about this in the, the years to come. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on. And maybe you could close by telling us a little bit how, because it's spoiler alert. It's a book about place. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you feel like place and peace interact.
2: That's great. Yeah. So I'm working on my first book, co-authoring with a friend of mine uh, from Wheaton College, a sociologist. Uh, And it's a book about um, how American Christians uh, think of and engage with space and place and land. Um, And uh, it's in some ways unique to the American church. Um, The questions that we're asking in this book. Because America has always had a pretty singular relationship to land and space you know um, pre pre independence you know with colonial uh, north America um, we we thought of land as something to claim for God and country um, you know, and we even at times depicted ourselves as a new a new Israel, a new chosen Mm -hmm. people in a, in a promised land. Um, uh, And then post independence, um, you know, the frontier experience provided what felt like limitless space, which was pretty utterly unique human experience Mm -hmm. to arrive here and think of, of all of what we perceived of as free land and land was cheap um that's that is an uncommon experience as well um and you know if coming forward land and place and space has been racialized in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in america in ways that are pretty unique um and uh i don't know if you've heard the term the big sort but these days mm-hmm. um you know we we even live in neighborhoods and enclaves largely around people who are like us in a lot of ways and make us feel comfortable. Um, And so land and place has played this outsized role in, um, in the American experience. And as Americans, we partake in that and we've been shaped by it. As American Christians, here's the question. Do we interact with land and place more as Americans or more as followers of Jesus? more as followers of the one who created that land um, because there are unique ways that as Christians we're called to engage with land. So we want to wrestle with that, with the missteps that we've made as American Christians uh, and with um, how to be people of shalom uh, in in our dealings with the land. Um, yeah. I think that the stories that we tell about land are really important, you know, to, to get to your question, um, the ways that we make decisions about where to live, um, and, um, how to invest in the land and in places, um, and what kinds of routes we should be putting down in places and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, um. Yeah, it's something I'm passionate about. I appreciate you asking, and and uh you know, as I think about Advent to bring it around to our theme, um Jesus um when he was born, um was born to a particular place. Yeah. And when we were created, we our two elements that were used, God used divine breath and a handful of dirt from Hmm. a particular place we are we have been people of particular places from the very beginning and um and i think that's uh, uh that's something that we can think about this christmas as well
0: yeah where are you yeah i love i think we're giving people homework on this podcast i don't know if i've ever done that but i think it's a good thing to do say where are you where is your place you are a person of a particular place and what does that mean for you during the season and again i love that question of telling the story of the other in a way that seeks peace that makes peace doesn't necessarily keep peace there's been a lot of great work done on the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking um what would it mean for you to to make peace even beginning in your own heart with the other this advent season so um Ben, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your work and following um, just along as your book is going to be released in, like not soon enough. I could use it tomorrow, <laughs> but it's going to probably be another year right. So where, where can people follow you so they can they can learn more?
2: Yeah, about about a year. Um, <clears> I have a website Bennorquist.org um, and uh, I'm also very active, most active on Facebook. Um, just if you if you look for me, Ben Norquist on Facebook. Um, but Instagram as well. And X.
0: Okay. Awesome. Uh, Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's just great to reconnect with you after all these years. I feel the same way. Thanks, Amanda. (laughs) The reading from the lectionary for week two is from Psalm 85 verses one and two and eight through 13. And just a reminder that Christians for generations have been contemplating these words as they await the coming of Christ at Christmas. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. Selah. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His faithful, to those who turn to Him in their hearts. Surely His salvation is at hand for those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground, and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. Joy to the